a lot of the founding fathers of this work located things in the individual. But the reality is the individual is part of a collective. You operate within a community, right? Which also pours into you and you pour into it. And that actually allows us to be the best version of ourselves. We become who we are at our highest essence through community. Hi everyone, this is Ava Bravada-Keating, and welcome to Psychologies of Liberation, a podcast that examines the goals and practices of psychology with radical imagination to help us all get free. This podcast is for all of us world builders who are not only interested in grappling with systems, structures, and ideologies that threaten our well-being, but who dream into new futures for relationship that are grounded in joy, equity, and everyone's right to beautiful, radiant things. Today's episode features Dr. James Norris, a psychologist, therapist educator, and my mentor and friend. We discuss authenticity and identity formation for BIPOC folks, considerations for therapists' self-disclosure, and the power of extending unconditional love to our clients, holding their humanity and ours too. Let's get into it. So, Dr. J, why don't you just introduce yourself in a way that you want to be known? Yeah, so my name is, you know, Dr. James Norris, a.k.a. Dr. J. Grew up in the L.A. area, and through that process of uh, seeing a lot of different positive and negative things really shaped the person that I am today, also shaped, you know, where I'm at in my life right now and how I see the world and how I hope to contribute to it. And, you know, grateful to be here with you, Ava, to, you know, have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom, you know, and your presence. So today we're talking a little bit about liberatory psychology or, you know, it could be known by many other names like decolonized psychology or critical psych. And specifically, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about the way that you feel like you really understand that idea, why it's important, and how you live into that in your teaching and your counseling practice. Yeah, I mean, when I think about liberatory psychology or decolonizing psychology, What comes to mind is really helping people reclaim themselves and being able to live that out in the face of maybe resistance. So often in our society, we're either being pulled to something or we attach things to ourselves that doesn't necessarily align, but we believe that's what we should be doing, but it's not authentic. And so my goal in my teaching or working with clients is creating spaces where folks can be themselves authentically and fully embrace that and then offer it back to the community in a way that can be enriching. And so I believe in its true essence, that's what liberatory psychology could offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so rich. And I really appreciate the ways in which you're connecting authenticity and liberation like we can't be free if we're if we can't be ourselves i wonder 
if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which you see the communities that you work with, you know, primarily BIPOC and Black folk as being stripped away or removed from their ability to be their authentic self due to many different things, colonialism, neocolonialism, environmental degradation, racism, Mm -hmm. right, and so on, the carceral state. And uh, yeah, maybe speak about the ways in which authenticity can be truncated and how we as people who are trying to be conscious about this and think about power dynamics as they exist in our discipline can address that. Yeah. I always like to start in like 2015, 16, I was taking a doctoral level class and we were going through a text that kind of really broke down the constitution of this country. And then something came up about slavery and my own reflection and my own journey, something that I thought of that I shared. And when you're asking me this question came up for me again, I shared that slavery in itself wasn't the greatest tragedy of Black people. It was horrific but it wasn't the greatest tragedy. I said the greatest tragedy was the stripping of identity of oneself. And that stripping of identity of cultural practices, norms, ways of being from a community standpoint was the beginning of stripping authenticity. And BIPOC communities and Black communities specifically have been on this journey of trying to reclaim what their identity is, what does it mean in a society, what does it mean in a community. And so when folks are coming to me and I'm doing this work, when I ask the question of who you are, most folks stumble, if not all, right? Because this core identity was stripped through the process of Black folks getting here. And you could see, and there were other cultures and and communities that experience slavery. But the thing that they didn't lose were their cultural norms and identities, right? And those communities are still thriving in spite of the horrific things that happen to their community. So it is something to say about having this identity, this way of being, this authenticity that's connected to yourself and your community that breathes this healing. And I run into that absence, right? And I ran into it for myself to go on this kind of exploration of, you know, who am I? What is the authenticity of myself and the people that I'm engaging with in my community? And it's a constant thing to work through. And so that really impacts how folks live out their authenticity. And then I think that bleeds into the other things that you mentioned. If one doesn't know themselves, they can be marginalized in the educational space. They can be uh, criminalized, right? Which then breeds into the mass incarceration. And now your identity has been connected to violence, danger, uneducated. But if you go back into history, you know, some of the first thinkers and and doctors came from the continent. But if you don't know that history and you don't know oneself, it's hard to live out 
and authenticity only the one that you know or that you're connected to. And so I think what we have the opportunity to do in bringing forth this liberatory work is not only helping people explore identity and self, but also reclaiming it to live out an authenticity. Mm, yes. And I hear you really bringing forward the importance of high quality historical education as well, yeah. and to really learn and reckon with the history of people, of culture, right? Of what has preceded us now as a way of reconnecting to identity. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you is know. that something that you think about as an educator as well? Yeah, it is because for BIPOC students or non-BIPOC students, I think is it's, it's important for both all groups of people to be able to connect to history to understand how that impacts us now, right? It helps us work with the individuals that may have come from those marginalized backgrounds because we have this not only current context, but we have this historical context, right? And it's not that we have to fix their problems, but we go into that work with a very different lens, which I think that's important for all students to be able to engage in because it's just going to expand them and how they engage in the work of helping others heal and liberate themselves. Right. I so appreciate what you're saying about the importance of this kind of engagement for everyone, because I think about the ways in which people from many different backgrounds are alienated from their own histories as well. Yes. Um, even if that is uh, the history of them as oppressor or their ancestors as oppressor. Mm -hmm. And then thinking about the ways that intergenerational trauma can yes. be passed down in ways yeah. that really get calcified and kind of obfuscated over generations. And so this kind of liberatory psychology framework, this kind of decolonizing of our discipline, of our profession, of our work can help people reckon with their identity in new ways. Yeah. And to your point, that goes for white folks or any other cultures. We all have this work to do as far as those internal conflicts and dealing with the historical legacy, whatever side your legacy is coming out of, you have to grapple with how you want to live that out. And mm -hmm. you can choose to live that out in a way where I know with the legacy that I come from, but this is what I want to do with whatever I have. And I think that is the real fundamental foundational thing that we have to start from because too often folks get paralyzed in their historical journey of where they come from, which impacts them to do the great work that they could do. And so part of what I believe is I want to get you out of paralysis. And that's why I tell my white students, my white counterparts or folks from other countries, you're not blamed for the slavery, the Jim Crow, the mass incarceration. So don't hold that burden. I'm releasing that burden from you. But what I am asking you is, if you have any type of privilege, what are you doing with it now? 
So the burden that it wasn't your fault, you didn't do it, let's release that, right? Because it wasn't. But you do have an obligation to do something with the privilege that you have. Yeah, word. You know, I hear you talking about agency and too, like, how, how are we going to use the agency that we have if we are able to sort of free ourselves and detach ourselves from these historical, like, blame game burdens that yes. really seek to demobilize rather than invigorate and connect? Yeah. And also, like, if we're talking about collective histories, histories of countries, of cultures, of people, like an entire, like, ethnic line, you know, um, which is huge, right? I mean, that exists in the collective, not in the individual, but then to have that collective burden be situated in the individual and to be taken up in isolation by the individual. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's too much to ask. Right. Yes. And I think also really speaks to this, a sort of white Eurocentric idea of psychology, which wants to locate everything in the individual. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the founding fathers of this work located things in the individual. But the reality is the individual is part of a collective. You operate within a community, right, which also pours into you and you pour into it. And that actually allows us to be the best version of ourselves. This kind of central agency within oneself doesn't allow us to cultivate to be the best version of ourselves. We become who we are at our highest essence through community. That's so true. Um, I mean, and I just think about the fact that so often the way that therapy happens, I mean, not always, but I would say the sort of majority that that um, we see in the United States is mm -hmm. master educated therapist who mm -hmm. has immense privilege in in a certain sense either financially or educationally or or in other ways fits across from a client and they're both sort of like behind closed doors in a room talking one-on-one -on -one. i mean of course there are group therapy offerings and other ways that people are really trying to bring in more of this collective more of this community spirit to yeah. our work but i mean i wonder if you could comment a little bit about some of the stereotypic norms of our profession that really are so focused um, individually and don't actually happen in the world. They happen apart from it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, psychology, therapy, the imagery that we've had is that you go into this office, it has a couch, paintings, your degrees up there, maybe some flowers, right? You can lay down. It's all pristine. And this is the place that you come for healing. But you come alone and we'll do this work for X amount of time. And so we have built this image, but also not just our society, psychology in itself has been a driver of this as well. And psychology has to be responsible for creating this ideology of individuality which ultimately can help people, but also it can be a detriment to people as well, because if they're connected to community, but you're asking them to abandon their community to have the healthiest life possible, uh, <clears throat> can be really challenging, right? And isolating for people. If part of who they are is community, but you're now telling them to isolate 
to be the best version of themselves is detrimental to that individual. And so psychology has been a driving force of this kind of individualistic society, really reaffirming the American society. That has to change. And that doesn't mean people can't seek individual work. But I think we have to be very clear in that work with individuals that there will be some elements of growth that can happen individually, but to continue to expand, it has to be connected. Um, mm-hmm. I just believe that we were here to exist, to be in relationship, not to be in isolation, but we're doing things that's not driving us there, right? We're doing things to stay isolated. And so psychology can be at the forefront of changing that narrative because of the authority that it has. Does it want to do that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think individuals that are coming through the field, like yourself, myself, and others, can continue to push the importance of how the individual really becomes the best version of themselves through community, not in isolation. And so that is going to be an important key to this all. Yeah, absolutely, Dr. J. I'm so like lit from within with all the stuff that you're saying. And I mean, I guess I would love to hear, I mean, certainly no one person, not even someone as brilliant as yourself can have all the solutions, you know? Yeah. Speaking of individual versus, you know, (laughs) and collective, (laughs) but I wonder how, if you think concretely about ways that we can actually bring some of what you're saying into reality, right? Like how we actually live into this, how we actually bring this into our work. Like how can we live liberatory psychology? Well, I mean, I, I think the part of living liberatory psychology how I vision it is having the willingness to be with and go to the community, connecting, right, with people, being there, letting them touch and see you, spending time with people. And what I realize is taking those steps enhance the individual time you have with someone, not the other way around. Not the individual time will enhance the community. No, the community connection enhances the trust, the openness, the vulnerability that can happen in the individual. And I think too often we're striving for people to be vulnerable and open and these things in the individual and asking them to transform that to the community. That's going to be challenging. But if there is this community connection, if you're in the community, you're around, they get to see your humanness, then it radically transforms what really psychology means. Now they can see it as a liberatory way for healing. And this was actually captured at dad because it was a community first, right? Will you say, will you tell our listeners who dads is? <laughs> yeah. So dads, it's a, uh, Divine alternative for dad service. They've been around for like 30 years in the greater Seattle area. What they do is they help fathers get reconnected with their children. And while they're doing that work, they also create services where folks 
dads can come in every Wednesday for fellowship. And through that fellowship, you're building community. You're building connection. And out of that, folks are now wanting to move towards, you know, doing deeper work, right, for themselves. But it was birthed out of the community building. That gives us an example uh, from a psychology standpoint. We have to change our narrative of how we're engaging this therapeutic work. Maybe that starts with community form, talking with people, creating a bridge towards community and individual work. If you engage with the people authentically, magical things will happen. They'll feel connected. And because they feel connected, they'll have the trust to move towards deeper work. You know, when you talk about allowing the community to see the humanity of you as a counselor, right? You as a mental health worker. Um, I think about the ways in which our profession uh, still is sort of caught up in the idea of clinician as detached tactician, right? Or as expert, right? As someone who lives outside of the world somehow, Mm -hmm. some way. Obviously, we know that that's not possible. But (laughs) um, And certainly there is no such thing as neutrality. Like we are people that are forged and experienced through our lives. We're not a blank slate, right? Yeah upon whom someone can project all of their stuff, right? And we can be detached. So when you talk about actually being in community authentically and allowing people to see your humanity, I wonder, do you think that you are charting a sort of new paradigm of the way that um, we as therapists, as counselors, as psychologists and so on, need to allow ourselves to be seen? Yes, I do believe that. And I know I would get pushback. And I tell my students as well that people are going to push back on how I think self-disclosure should happen. And us as clinicians really showing our humanity. But what I truly believe is if I'm asking someone to offer their soul to me, I give them nothing in return. How is that a mutual exchange? How is healing going to happen if they don't believe that the person that they're engaging with is a human that has been through things? And yes, there can be discretion on what you share, of course. And you want to share things that can be beneficial for the client's healing. But this idea that we should shield ourselves off and just be the expert and tell clients what to do, the rate of success just goes down dramatically because people want to know that you've been through something. To tell them something, they want to know. You don't necessarily have to go through what they've gone through, but they want to know that you've had human experience. And I think there are creative ways and ethical ways to do that, right? Than not doing it at all. 
and I've been doing this and there's been success. And so that's why I've been really thinking about how are we imagining self-disclosure right now? Is the way we're imagining it hindering the therapeutic process? If I have some information, a life experience that could potentially help the client have a transformation and I withhold that, how is that not hurting the client? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about an ethical mandate to share of yeah. yourself, actually. Yes. If I don't give them something that can help their progress, how is that ethical? Mm-hmm. How is that <laughs> not doing harm? So I feel like I have a responsibility to do that as a human being, not just as a clinician. As a clinician and a human being, I have a responsibility to offer something that could potentially help someone live a better life. And so I'm willing to get pushback. I'm willing to go through that paradigm. I'm willing to straddle this very fine line, which it is, right, to help people live a better life. Yeah. Well, I think so much of what liberatory psychology asks us to do is to boldly and conscientiously and in community push past some of the current norms of the way things are operating. Because as we know, the current way that things are operating is not optimal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Not for anyone, but especially for certain marginalized communities, right? So it requires us to think past what we have access to now and to actually imagine into new futures, even if it's scary, even if it's risky, even if it lands us in a little bit of hot water from time to time, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, because it's this thing of love is on a spectrum. And not all love is romantic love. Right. And we all need deep love and a lot of us haven't experienced it and that deep love that's beyond the sexual romantic love is the deep love that you know what I'm going to love you even with everything that has happened in your life it's a kind of acceptance that's beyond the physical. And as as counselors, we have this opportunity to love our clients in a way, to see them in a way that allows them to be free again, be embraced again, and to be willing to embrace others. And so we have this opportunity to really create that. But if we don't bring ourselves, we can't give it. And so we're also hindering our clients from experiencing that, which allows them to go on and know what it feels like to be fully embraced and then be able to offer it like we were talking about earlier, right? I mean, how can I love you if I haven't even been willing to receive it? The love I'm talking about is just the humanity, right? 
of someone, the respect of someone, but we won't believe we're able to do that unless others show us that it can be done. And we have this unique opportunity to do that in the psychology space. And this liberatory psychology really speaks to this kind of love, right, for people. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. I was actually just going to ask you if liberatory psychology and all the things that we've been talking about imply or necessitate an abiding and unconditional love for humanity. And I think what you're saying is a resounding yes. Yes, it does. It does. Unconditional love. Right. Mm -hmm. We're all searching for that as human beings. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's very hard to find. Who's going to love me unconditionally? Who's going to love me in my faults? Through my quote-unquote failures. And we all need that. We all need that unconditional love. And liberatory psychology and the profession we're in, we have the an opportunity to offer that up on some level to people. Right. And you can see what someone may think is the worst of themselves and not turn away, but to actually offer your presence, your witness, your love, your unconditional love to someone, even in the face of their greatest pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a human being, if we can get that in our lives, we're at peace, right? We don't need everybody to love us unconditionally. If we have one or a handful that just embrace us in our full totality, it's life-changing because we know, you know what, I can step into my authenticity because there's people that really know me. Yeah. I'd like to wrap up today's discussion by asking you, what are some of the elements of the liberation movement, more broadly speaking, outside of psychology that are needed to push things forward for <clears> us <throat> as people in the mental health space? There's a few things that come to my mind. Economic liberation, you know, and that may come through the form of education, knowledge, be thinking about how we think about economics and you know, what's excess and what we really need, right? To really have a healthy functioning community. And then I think the other piece is, you know, folks that are within the community doing this work, really galvanizing together and really thinking about different ways to do this work as we're talking about. And then I think if we can galvanize and think about this work differently, we could really create structures that allow it to be done differently. Those are things that we can do that can start creating change. I'm hesitant to go to the elected officials in a, a government right away. I'm just a firm believer if you can build it, build it on the grassroots, then you build leverage to go to them, as we have talked about before, right? is that if you build it yourself, then you go to the table with leverage, right? Um, mm. and, and you're not told how you need to do it. 
you're communicating how it needs to be done. And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the most effective ways to start changing the narrative so we can still have the autonomy that we need to do the work in which we see it. Absolutely. Well, Dr. J, I really want to thank you so much for this conversation and for your your willingness to share your perspective and your brilliance and your heart with me. And um, I'll look forward to talking more about this next time. Yeah, absolutely. We'll continue. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. <laughs> This podcast was edited by Charlie Spears. Theme music by Bang Quang. Special thanks to Dr. James Norris and Dr. Erica Lillette for their mentorship and enthusiastic support with this project. I'm your ever-curious host, Ava Bravada-Keating. Thank you for listening. Bye.